I was nicknamed Steve at school because apparently I looked like six-time world snooker champion Steve Davis, which is interesting. Hello and welcome to this week's Urgent Bite, brought to you by the Royal New Zealand College of Urgent Care. My name is Guy Melrose and today we have a quick look at lignocaine toxicity. Unlike some of the Urgent Bites I make, this one has not been inspired by a real-life clinical situation. Indeed, I've never seen a case of lignocaine toxicity in practice. But I found myself reading about it due to my wife showing me a video meme and thought it was worth refreshing my knowledge in case I ever do come across this problem. Now the video in question showed an anaesthetist anaesthetizing a redhead and the caption referenced the anaesthetist thinking that they had administered the anaesthetic only for the patient to be wide awake still. The video was implying that redheads are harder to anaesthetise. Not being an anaesthetist, this would usually be of no concern to me, but being a redhead meant that this piqued my interest. Up until this point, having red hair impacted my life in only a couple of ways. Firstly, I have a long list of nicknames I've gathered over the years, Steve being the most original and niche, but the only clinical relevance has been a lifetime subscription to the strongest sunscreen available, a preference for shade, and a yearly mole map. I've never had a general anaesthetic, so the idea that my gingerness might impact that, should I ever undergo surgery, was something I thought worth looking into, but for personal interest rather than the podcast. A 2004 study by Liem et al. in the journal Anesthesiology concluded that red hair was linked to increased inhaled anesthesia requirement. However, further work by Gradval et al. in 2015 in the Canadian Journal of Anesthesia concluded that there were no demonstrable differences. So, At this point of my reading, I thought that I would just wait until I ever needed an anaesthetic and would simply ask my anaesthetist at the pre-op assessment for their opinion. But it was another paper by Liem et al. in 2005, again in the journal Anesthesiology, that caught my eye further. And this follow-on study looked at thermal pain and subcutaneous lignocaine in redheads, And they concluded that redheads are more sensitive to thermal pain and are resistant to the analgesic effects of lignocaine. Red hair is a mutation of the melanocortin receptor 1, and there have been studies in mice with this gene that have shown reduced sensitivity to noxious stimuli and increased sensitivity to opioids. So Liem et al. concluded that this gene might be responsible for altered anaesthesia response in redheads. There was an interesting article written by Jonathan Barry in the BMJ in 2010 that discussed some of the surgical implications for redheads, mostly driven by anecdotes, including increased bleeding potential, propensity for hernias, 
and the aforementioned anaesthetic resistance, and their conclusions were that most of the anecdotal stories remain questionable in the literature, although they did say that the anaesthesia resistance was the most conclusive. And personally, it was the local anaesthetic resistance that struck a chord with me. I've had local anaesthetic twice for stitches and a couple of times for dental work. And in my case study of one, I can report that the anaesthetic was not that effective. I remember as a child sitting in the dentist chair and being told to raise my hand if I felt pain when the drill was used. And my hand was up the whole time. Sadly, the dentist did not stop. And I think therein lies my dislike for dentists. But my recollection of all times I've had anaesthetic was that I was aware of pain throughout. So that brings me to the point of this podcast, because my conclusion from reflecting on these papers and my personal experiences is that we need to check with our patients that they have adequate local anaesthesia before proceeding. We can use adjuncts like entonox or oral analgesia, but some people, gingers and otherwise, might need a little bit more than others. All humans are different, after all, and so titrating the right amount is the key. Which is how I came to think about lignocaine toxicity. If someone needs more local to get the desired effect, could we use too much? Well, local anaesthetic systemic toxicity, or LAST, is rare, but it does occur. I've linked to a great paper to read by L. Bogdadli et al. in the journal Local Regional Anesthesia from 2018. The article is called Local Anesthetic Systemic Toxicity, Current Perspectives, and it goes through the mechanisms, causes, symptoms, treatments, as well as including a table of maximum doses per weight. It's worth reading through, but my take-homes were as follows. The incidence is 0.03%. Older and younger patients are at increased risk. Pregnancy increases risk. Renal disease requires a reduced dose, and we should be extra cautious in those with pre-existing cardiac issues. Maximum dose of lignocaine, the drug that most of us here in New Zealand will be using, is 5 milligrams per kilogram, or 7 milligrams per kilogram if used with adrenaline, although in kids under 4 months this dose should be reduced. Indeed, Royal Children's Hospital of Melbourne state 4 to 5 milligrams per kilogram as their guideline. CNS symptoms are the most common features, which include perioral paresthesia, agitation, visual disturbance, reduced level of consciousness and seizures. Dysrhythmias then occur later. Most symptoms occur immediately after infusion. So reading around this elsewhere, we must also consider all local anaesthetic that we use, and this includes topical preparations. We should ensure we aspirate to confirm we're not in a blood vessel, as unintentional IV injection is a cause. Using ultrasound to aid in regional blocks is recommended to ensure correct location. And going right back to the start of all this, only using the minimum amount needed to get an effect is important. Now the paper that I mention and the Royal Children's Hospital of Melbourne guideline goes over the treatment, but mostly it involves stopping the local anaesthetic administration, maintaining the airway, supplemental oxygen, 
managing seizures with benzodiazepines, and then ACLS as required. Lipid emulsion therapy is a treatment for the hospital, and so if this happens in your clinic, obviously an ambulance transfer as soon as possible to hospital is required. But I guess the key to this is to be aware of your doses, any risk factors, and go slow. While unlikely to happen, updating your knowledge on topics like this is a good use of CPD time. The paper I mentioned does cover a lot, too much to cover extensively in this bite, so do have a review of the paper and the Melbourne guidelines just to refresh your memories. Links are in the show notes. If you have any comments, questions, corrections or suggestions, email podcast at rnzcuc.org.nz. We'll be back again next week with another podcast. I look forward to seeing you all then. But for now, thanks for listening. <laughs>